You are about to listen to A Fresh New Start, Part 5 of The Lost Art of Teshuva. All of the Shmuzin, as well as many series that deal with real-life issues, are available on the Shmooze.com or on the Shmooze app, available for iPhone or Android. That's www.theshmuz.com or by phone at Kol HaLashon, 718-906-6461. The Medrash Rabbah tells us that for 18 years there was a Bafskol in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. On a regular basis, a powerful, booming voice came out and said, Lowly Evid, lowly slave, why don't you go and destroy the base of Mikdash because my children have rebelled. And despite the fact that Nebuchadnezzar would have loved nothing else than conquering Yerushalayim and destroying the base of Mikdash, he ignored that Baskol year after year. Finally, at the end of the 18 years, something came over him. He still wasn't sure. He did various divinations. He had certain proofs that, in fact, he'd be successful. But even at that point, he was afraid to go himself on the conquest. He sent his general, Nebuzaradan. Nebuzaradan was the one who laid siege to Yerushalayim. He surrounded the city. And Nebuchadnezzar sent him with 300 siege hammers. These were special hammers that were able to cut through metal. When the Vizaradan surrounded the city, he remained there for three and a half years. Those 300 siege hammers were broken one after another after another. After he realized he had but one hammer left, after he realized it had been years now and he hadn't succeed, succeeded, he decided to break camp. He decided to head back. At that moment, another boss call came out, a voice from heaven, attack, attack, and you will be successful. He himself picked up the last siege hammer <clears throat> with one fell swoop, destroyed the gate to Yerushalayim. It opened up, and he marched in. He marched in, and he himself began killing Babylonian Soldiers began killing left, right, and center, and he himself entered the base of Mikdash. He took a firebrand, a torch, threw it in, and almost by magic, the Heichel lit up in flames, literally from floor to ceiling, lit on flames. And at that point, the Gemara says, Hizich Daito, he became arrogant, he became full of himself. Huh, look what I've accomplished. I've conquered Yerushalayim, I've destroyed God's sanctuary. He became full of himself, and again a baskol came out, a powerful heavenly voice came out and said the words, Amakatila Katalt, you killed a dead nation. You burnt down a burnt sanctuary. You ground ground wheat. You've done nothing. <clears throat> it's their sins, it's their issue that destroyed the base of Mikdish, that destroyed themselves. You've accomplished nothing. It's ground wheat that you've ground. Don't be full of yourself. Apparently, it didn't shake him to his core, didn't change his direction. He walked into the Azara and he noticed something very unusual. On the floor of the Azara was blood that was bubbling. And he said to the Kohanim there, What is this? And after a protracted back and forth, they told him, It's the blood of Zachariah. Who's Zachariah? Zachariah was a Novi, he was a Kohen. He warned us that if we don't repent, the base of Mikdash should be destroyed, and we killed him here in the Azara. At which point, Nebuzaradan said, fine, 
I'll appease his blood. I'll make it stop bubbling. <clears throat> Says the Gemara, he brought the Sanhedrin Gedola. He took the Sanhedrin and slaughtered them right there to mix their blood with the blood of Zechariah, but still the blood continued bubbling. He said, fine. He brought the Sanhedrin Ketana, slaughtered them. He brought Pirchei Kahuna, young Kohanim in training, slaughtered them. Group after group after group of Jews he killed and had their blood mixed with the blood of Zechariah, but the blood kept boiling. The Gemara tells us that in the end he killed 940,000 Jews. 940,000 Jews he slaughtered right there. If you look in the Pasuk and Yirmiya, and the ear of Basiam, the nation, the city that was filled with multitudes of people, by the time he was done, there were 832 Jews left in the city. And after slaughtering the 940,000 right there, the blood still bubbled. And he calls out in a loud voice, and he says, Zechariah, Zechariah, I killed the best of them. Do you want me to kill all of them? At that point, the blood stopped bubbling. And that moved him. This was too much. He said to himself as follows, If it took this much to avenge the life of one innocent man, this is what's due, what's going to be with me. I didn't kill one innocent man. I didn't kill tens of thousands. I killed multitudes. What's going to be with me? Says the Gemara Miyad Hiri B'tshuva. He did tshuva in his heart. He sent a letter to his house what to do, who to give his properties to. He ran away. And he converted the Bryce. It tells us he became a Ger Tzedek. But not only did he become a Ger Tzedek, from his lineage came Shmaya Avatalion, great, great Talmud Chachamim, people who were links in the Masorah, people who taught Torah Barabim. And this Gemara, if we were to stop here and just read it at face value, is a powerful lesson. It doesn't get worse than the Buzaradan. Destroying the base of Megdish, killing tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews, and then he does tshuva. And not only is this tshuva accepted, but the great Shemaya of Avatayim come out of his lineage, I guarantee if from this moment on till the rest of your existence you set your courts at nothing other than angering Hashem if you set every ounce of energy to destroy everything the Torah stands for you would not begin to reach a ten thousandth of the wickedness of this man and yet he did tshuva he became a gertzedek and his tshuva was accepted so again if we hear nothing else just the fact that even such a man could do tshuva, I think it would be a huge chiddush and a lesson well worth learning. But I think there's a lot more for us to learn from this if we study a little bit further in the Gemara. The Gemara tells us that the grandchildren of Nebuchadnezzar, the grandchildren of Nebuchadnezzar also wanted to be Megayer, wanted to convert. And Hashem was going to allow them to do so. The Malachi Ashara said, how can that be? Hashem, he was the one who sent Nebuzaradan, and he was the one who was responsible for destroying the base of Mikdash. How could you possibly accept his grandchildren as converts, says the Marsha, even though they were fit, even though they were roy to convert on their own, because of the demerit of their grandfather, the Malachim stood up 
and said it can't be. Hashem agreed, and they were not accepted. So here's the question. Nebuzaradan was a man who actually destroyed the base of Mikdash. Nebuzaradan was a man who killed 940,000 Jews. He himself was able to do tshuva. He himself was able to convert. The grandchildren of Nebuchadnezzar, who didn't actually destroy the base of Mikdash, he was only the man who sent the criminal. The grandchildren of Nebuchadnezzar couldn't convert. Manushah, if the sin is so egregious, then Nebuzaradan should not have been able to do tshuva. And if the sin is not so egregious, why couldn't the grandchildren of Nebuchadnezzar do tshuva? What's the distinction that Nebuchadnezzar was able to and the grandchildren of Nebuchadnezzar were not able to? And I'd like to focus on this issue this evening and get a better understanding of the process of tshuva. And to do that, let's begin with an observation that Rabbeinu Yonah and Shari Tshuva shares with us. Rabbeinu Yonah says that any tshuva, any tshuva whatsoever accomplishes something. However, he says, there are many, many levels to tshuva. He says it's something like a baguette. Imagine they have a stain on your coat. If you have a mud stain on your coat and you rub it a little bit, it gets a little bit of the mud off. Rub it some more, some more comes off. Rub it more deeply, more deeply. Finally, if you really rub the material one against the other and really, really rub it clean, the stain is as if it's not there. Says Rabbi Yonah, that is a mushal to tshuva. Any tshuva, any charata, any regret, any remorse does some good. Takes some of the stain off. However, to totally remove a sin, to totally remove a sin as if it wasn't there at all requires a very real deep harata, very real deep remorse, regret, and that process can be done, but requires a very, very powerful sense of remorse. That is the basic process of tshuva. The ikr, the main thing of tshuva, is harata, is remorse. With that being said, here's an obvious question on the process of tshuva. Every action that we do has two elements to it. An internal damage and an external damage. Any sin has two results. If I take a rock and throw it, breaking your car shield window, breaking your car shield window shield, there are two things that are accomplished. Number one, I've damaged my midos. I've made myself more angry. I acted with nakama. I took revenge against you. Internally, I did some damage. Now, even if you tell me that my remorse, regret, my charata can undo the damage that I've done to my midos, that's very nice, but your windshield is still broken. The internal, I understand. Tshuva undoes the internal damage. But how do you fix the windshield? And the Mesullah Sharm in Perik Dalad explains that this question is very real. He says, imagine that Ruvain pulls out a gun and shoots Shimon dead. And then Ruvain has a tremendous sense of regret. Oy vey, what did I do? Murder. He mommy, she's a broken man. So now what happens? Shimon uh, comes back. Now Shimon's alive. Shimon is as dead as he was before the Harata. Very nice. You could affect your inside, your internal system, but you can't bring the dead man back. How does tshuva function? How does it work? And I'd like to spend a minute or two on answering this, understanding this. But to do that, we have to better understand a fundamental yisod in our Amunah system. 
Chovos Lovovos in Shar B'Tochon lays down a axiomatic principle. I can't touch you, you can't touch me. No human being can change another destiny. If my destiny is to live, have success, well-being, there is nothing you can do to change it. If my destiny is to suffer, be sick, or die, there's nothing you can do to change that as well. You can't hurt me, you can't help me. Hashem decrees what will be, and Hashem works all of the details out to fulfill exactly the decrees that He's decided. That being said, here's an interesting philosophical question. How could Reuven ever kill Shimon? If Reuven pulls out a gun and shoots, if Shimon is supposed to live, there's nothing Reuven could do to change that. If Shimon's supposed to die, you don't need Reuven. How is there a concept of Ritzicha? How is there murder in the Torah? And the answer to that, and this is one of the principles, bedrock principles of our entire Bitochen system is, that if Ruvain succeeded, what that means is Shimon was slated to die. If in fact Shimon was not supposed to die, there is nothing that Ruvain could have done, nothing that would have, would have accomplished. The gun would have misfired, the New York City Police Department would have shown up, any number of things would have happened. He would not have succeeded in murdering Shimon. If in fact Ruvain succeeded in killing Shimon, what that means is the previous Rosh Hashanah, there was a Zardin, there was a decree that Shimon should die. But not only was it a decree that he should die, he should die on a given day in a violent manner. And as a matter of fact, what it really means is that Ruvain did nothing. Let's say Ruvain had elected not to pull the trigger on the gun. Let's say Ruvain in the last minute said, oh my goodness, it's murder, I'm not, I can't do this. And he runs away, Shimon would have died anyway. He would have been hit by lightning, hit by a car, a telephone pole would have fallen on him. Hashem has many, many shlichim. But the point is, Ruvain changed nothing. When he pulled out that gun, held it and pointed it directly at Shimon, it looks like he's so powerful. It looks like he's controlling the destiny of Shimon. He controls nothing. He's powerless. Hashem created the world, maintains the world, and orchestrates it. Now, that being said, we should ask the following question. If so, how do you hold Ruvain responsible? If you tell me that anyway Shimon would have died, if you're telling me that effectively Ruvain is irrelevant, then how is he Chayiv Misa? How is he responsible for what's come about? So the answer to that question is to allow for Bechira, to allow for free will, to allow for Scharva Onish, Hashem allows for a system of culpability. What that means is, if Ruvain decided to pull the trigger on the gun, and it was slated that Shimon should die, and therefore Ruvain was successful, even though he did nothing, even though Shimon would have died anyway, and Ruvain is held accountable for that death. It's put onto his scorecard, he's considered the one who did it, even though had he not been there, it would have happened anyway, <clears throat> even though Hashem decided on the previous Rosh Hashanah, this is what should be, if he in fact did it, if he chose to do it, his Bechira, his choice to do it, makes it that that Maisa, that action is attributed to him on his scorecard, it's placed, it's put there. We spent a lot of time in Shmuel's number 204 working on these concepts because they're not so simple and they require a lot of thought and if you have some time, I think it's good to listen to that, but here is the application that I'd like to share with you. Once we understand this system then tshuva makes a lot of sense. 
You see, really, when Ruvain pulled that trigger on the gun, he did nothing. Shimon was going to die anyway, that day, in a violent manner. The Misa, the action is attributed to Ruvain because that's the way Hashem created and runs the world to allow for free will, to allow for reward and punishment. But really, what did Ruvain change? Nothing. What effect did he really bring about? Nothing whatsoever. It's attributed to him because of his decision, because of his intention, because of his will. Well, watch what happens. It really wasn't his action anyway. It was put onto him almost artificially, attributed to him because of his will. What if he undoes that will? What if he reaches a sense of remorse that Hashem says testimony on him? He never would do that again. He's a different human being. The undoing of the will takes the action and takes it off of his scorecard. The Shari Tshuva explains to us that one of the great chasadim, one of the great favors that Hashem did for us is give us a system called tshuva. Hashem knows our nature, Hashem knows that we're going to mess up, and therefore Hashem gave us a way to undo it, even though you can't change it, but since it was anyway artificially attached to you, if you undo the will that you had to do it, it's no longer attributed to you. So when you go through that process of tshuva, when you go through the process of regret and remorse, internally you undo the damage, externally the action is still done, but no longer attributed to you, it's as if you and that action have no connection, and that's how tshuva works on the internal system, as well as the external system. And by the way, that's exactly what the Basco said to Nebuzaradan, don't be so haughty, yes you feel you destroyed Yerushalayim, you feel you destroyed the base of Mikdash, you killed a dead nation. You control nothing. The Heichal was burnt already. You ground ground wheat. The reason why you were successful is not because of your might, not because of your power, but because the Jewish nation sinned. It was slated. It was supposed to be. You did nothing. Nevertheless, if you pulled the trigger on the gun, you are responsible. And I believe that's exactly the answer to Nebuchadnezzar. You see, when the Vuzaradim killed those 940,000 Jews, and he came to that recognition that this is the amount of demand for kapara, for one innocent Jew, he was shook to the core, to the essence. And he reached an understanding of what I've been doing is so foolish, so ridiculously stupid. He reached a tremendous sense of harata, of remorse. And what happened was, internally, he eliminated the will, undid the damage, and instantly he was detached from the action. He was unattached because anyway, he wasn't the Baal HaMaisa. That was Hashem's decision how many Jews should die and when. It was Hashem's decision when the Beis Megdash should be destroyed, in what manner. He was allowed to go through the actions like a puppet. It was attributed to him because of his will. Once he undid the will, the physical action was detached. The internal damage was undone because of the remorse, because of the regret. And he ended up being a clean slate, no connection to that action. The base of Mikdash was still destroyed. He was not the one who did it. And that's how he was able to do tshuva. However, the grandchildren of Nebuchadnezzar were not so lucky. Their grandfather was dead. They can't undo an action that he did. He sent a man to destroy Yerushalayim. He sent a messenger to destroy God's sanctuary. The grandchildren wanted to come and be Jewish, but that stain was on their lineage. 
their grandfather had done that, and their tshuva could not eliminate their grandfather's action. And therefore they were, excuse the expression, unlucky. But you see, this is the point. You can undo an action that you did, you can't undo an action that someone else did. And whilst these concepts are very deep and very, very hard to put into really solid grip, I think the concept that we need to understand is that tshuva really works. Whether we could fully understand how a Nebuzaradan could kill and then walk away from it or not, the concept is true. And the reason is because ultimately Hashem is the one who controls the destiny, we just go through the motions. And the concept that I think that we need to think about is that if this man, one of the ultimate Rishoyim in history, can detach the actions, undo the internal damage, then it's a no-brainer, it's a walk in the park for us to undo the damage that we've done. We do sin. But it's not amazing. I've never in my life killed a human being. I never woke up in the morning saying, I'm going to stab him, make him dead. I sin. Many of my averas are serious. Many of my averas need kapara. But nowhere near, nowhere near the league of what this man did. And once I understand that anything, almost anything, can be undone because ain dover ome bifnea tshuva, and then I understand that even I can come clean totally and completely. If the Vuzaradan can become a tabla raska, a clean slate, then surely I can. And once you hear the power of tshuva, I think it should be a powerful, moving force to get us to use Sereshimei Tshuva, get us to use Yom Kippur properly. I can go from whatever I've done and clean the slate. An entire year, maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years of stuff that I've built up, accumulated. Lashon Hara, Bittal Torah, whatever my issues are, they pile up, pile after pile after pile. I can come clean, wipe the slate clean, totally start anew. It's not a magic bullet. You don't just walk into shul, clap a couple of achets, and it's gone. It requires a very real understanding. It requires a very, very real digging within yourself and reaching a different point where you're looking at life, you're looking at yourself differently, such that you look back at what you've done and you said, how could I have ever done that? What was I thinking? If I could go back, I would undo it all. I never, ever would do it again. And if Hashem is made on you, that had you been in that same place, you in that same time period, with that same situation, and you would not have done it, that is a complete charata, complete remorse. The external part, you didn't do anyway, it was just attributed to you. The internal damage that you've done is undone. You walk away clean, fresh, a new start. And again, this is a tremendous, a tremendous yesod in tshuva, and should be a very powerful motivating force for us to use the tshuva process properly. However, unfortunately, it's irrelevant. No shaykhistos. And I'll prove it to you. Listen, we all know there's a concept of tshuva. All right, this is a chazal that illustrates another level to it, very impressive. We've all known this for years. We all know that there's a concept called wiping, clean the slate. And we all know that Yom Kippur is a day that's very, very receptive for that. We know Hashem created Yom Kippur specifically, gave us a mitzvah sasei to do tshuva, and Hashem awaits our tshuva. Yet, how is it possible that we're not all in shul 
hours and hours, tears running down our face, banging, every sin, getting rid of it. If I really believe that tshuva worked, if I really understood that I've sinned, I've put black marks on my soul, I've damaged myself, and I can undo them, how is it possible that we're not in shul from morning to night, Yom Kippur, tears running down our face, crying, bitter, bitter tears, Listen, Baruch Hashem, we take Yom Kippur seriously, but that's not quite an apt description. And I'd like to share with you why I believe that's true. Why is it that even though we can know that there's a concept called tshuva, we can know that we can wipe the slate clean, it's still not relevant to us. And that is because we human beings make three mistakes about the world to come. Three mistakes that are endemic to the human condition. Every human being makes these mistakes. It's natural. It's instinctive. The first two are very, very difficult to change. The third is rather simple to change. Let me share with you what those mistakes are. And mistake number one that every human being makes about the world to come is, I will not die. Plain and simple. I have no intentions of dying. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to be. I mean, you know, I guess in theory, I know most people do die, and, you know, I guess any human being that was created eventually dies, but it's not applicable to me. I will live at least as long as Metushelach or longer. It's just not, not in this lifetime. Anyway, it ain't going to happen. And if you think I'm being facetious, just ask yourself, how real is it? Do I really, really deal with this in a concrete manner? Do I really understand that my time is limited? And you'll understand exactly as Chavetz Chaim says, that Hashem put blinders in our eyes. We are incapable of seeing our death. Why? Because if I understood that my time was limited, if I really saw that I'm here for a few short years, and then it's gone, and then I will be exactly what I shaped myself into, I would lose free will. Effectively, I would have no Bechira. Why? Because I would get it. Every conversation with another human being shapes me, molds me into what I will be for eternity. Every time I act kindly and magnanimous, it makes me into a better person. Every time I act selfish and self-centered, it damages me. Every word of Torah changes me. Every time I daven, every time I keep any mitzvah, it makes me into a greater person. Effectively, I would lose Bechira. The way Hashem keeps free will is by blinding us from this reality. We can't see our death. I'm going to live 930 years at least. I got plenty of time. So even if tshuva is true, even if there is a concept called tshuva, it's not relevant because I got plenty and plenty and plenty of time. No rush. This Yom Kippur is no urgency. I got about maybe 880 more years to go. Don't worry about it. No rush. Okay. That's reason number one why it's difficult for us to do tshuva. Reason number two is also very interesting. Have you ever watched somebody pick up a travel brochure? Maybe a travel magazine or one of these travel brochures and you see, and watch them when they pick it up. You see them look at the beautiful beach scene. Aruba, wow, cloudless sky, white sand. And you know and understand that that person has no intention of ever going to that place. Most people who pick up travel brochures, most people who read travel magazines have no intention of ever going there. It's a beautiful, exotic vacation. It looks wonderful, but it's got nothing to do with me. 
I think that most of us look at Olam Haba that way. Wow, look at Chazal's descriptions. It's going to be great, such anah, such pleasure, being close to Hashem. Wow, it's wonderful, but it's got nothing to do with me. You see, I'll be dead. You see, I'm dead is like asleep, like like at rest, like sleeping. So it's got, I'm not going to be there. I guess my, my neshama, my alter ego, my distant cousin, some splinted down version of me maybe, but I'll be dead, not there, asleep, sound asleep. You know, Harvey was a good man, but he's in his final resting place. You know, he's resting, he's asleep. I will be dead, so therefore, Olam Haba, the world to come, has nothing to do with me, because I ain't going to be there. So this tshuva system is interesting, it's nice, I could clean up, get the sins off, but it doesn't matter, it's not relevant to me, because I won't be there. These first two problems are very, very ingrained in the human being, very hard to solve. However, I'd like to share with you some material, <coughs> I've mentioned this in previous Muslim, but it's Erev Yom Kippur, and it bears repeating. In 1975, Raymond Moody created quite a stir in scientific circles when he published his book, Life After Life. You see, he coined the phrase near-death experience when he wrote that book. A near-death experience, as you know, is a situation where the person, the patient, is clinically dead. Typically, no respiration, no heart rate, oftentimes no EEG, literally dead, then somehow the person is resuscitated, and the, when the person is revived, they recall things that happened whilst they were dead. The frightening part about it is that they often recall exact conversations. They often recall details that they couldn't possibly have known because they were dead, but letter by letter with an exactitude that's frightening. Now, since the publication of his book, literally thousands of cases have been reported, and has been carefully analyzed, carefully scrutinized, and irrefutable evidence has been over and over been presented to the fact that people, when they're dead, somehow recognize, understand, remember, and can tell over what happened. Lancet Magazine, a prestigious British medical journal, recently published a study of a few hundred of such events. And I'd like to share with you one single event, one single case that they described. A 36-year-old woman had an aneurysm in the brain. She had bleeding in the brain. The typical procedure is to open the scalp, corduroyize that area, burn it, and by burning it you stop the bleeding, close up the scalp, and the woman lives. The problem was the bleeding was in a region of the brain that was so deep that if they went in that far, they would cause, cause residual bleeding that would effectively cause the bleed to death and they said to the woman, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do for you. And they sent her home to die. There was a surgeon who had a somewhat theoretical procedure that might have saved her life. It was called standstill. He explained it. Basically what it entails is draining all of the blood from her head. And when all of the blood is out, if the surgeon opens her scalp and goes in, corduroys the area because there is no blood there, she can't bleed to death. Then, if they quickly close it back up, insert the blood back into her body, it's possible that she will survive. There was no alternative. She consulted with other medical professionals. She consulted with her clergy. She decided to undergo the operation. Now, they had to make sure that there was no blood whatsoever. So, now, after putting her under anesthetic, not only did they put monitors in her ear, put tape over her, ear, over her eyes, 
They put her body in a bath of ice. They drained the blood from her head. And at that point, when she was stone dead, and the surgeon opened up her scalp, opened the skull, and reached into the area, cauterized the area quickly as he could, and he then closed it back up. They reinserted the blood into her, and she survived. When she began regaining consciousness and she began regaining her senses, at a certain point the surgeon came to visit her. And the surgeon reports that when he walked in the room, she said, Doctor, <laughs> I have to share with you, I had the strangest nightmare, strangest dream. And when you were operating on me, I dreamt that I popped out of my body <laughs> and I was hovering by the ceiling watching. And, and, and you took this electric toothbrush. <laughs> you took an electric toothbrush and you tried to insert it into a vein in, in my thigh, but it wouldn't fit. And so you said to the nurse next to you, it doesn't fit. She said, try it again. And he tried it a second time, and it didn't fit. The nurse said, try it again. And he tried it another time, it still didn't fit. The nurse said, try it one more time. You tried it another time, and finally it fit in. <laughs> Isn't that strange? The doctor didn't laugh. The doctor turned white. Because part of the procedure involved taking a medical instrument that looked somewhat like an electric toothbrush from afar, he needed to insert it into a vein in her thigh, but the veins were too small. When he attempted it, he couldn't get it in. He said to the surgical nurse next to him, it doesn't fit. She said, try again. He tried a second time. He said, it still doesn't fit. She said, try again. He tried a third time, and he was able to insert it. But that conversation between doctor and nurse was had when this woman was dead, her body in a bath of ice, no blood in her head, no electrical impulses in her brain, unconscious. If you screamed at her, if you yelled at her, she wasn't there. Yet she heard and remembered exact details. Now to Western science, this is a revolutionary concept because what it implies is that I am not the body. The body is the housing. The body is the cloak that I wear. I am like that astronaut in the spacesuit, but I am the man inside. The body doesn't define me. The physical essence is what temporarily houses me, but I am the spiritual essence. The I who thinks, the I who remembers is spiritual. And when the body is buried, I live on. But I, with all of my thoughts, all of my memories, I leave the body. And whilst it's difficult for us to understand that I will die, and it's difficult to understand that it's not some alter ego, not some distant cousin, not some scaled down version of me, but it's actually me. I think if we think about these things, eventually we can get a grip on it, eventually we can understand it. But as I say, these are just the two problems, the first two problems with the world to come. The third is far more damaging. To illustrate to you what the third problem we have with relating to the world to come, I'd like to switch to a little bit different venue. If you ask the average young man who is engaged, take a chassan and ask him the following question. What do you think your marriage is going to look like? Oh, it's going to be wonderful. I love her. She loves me. It's going to be peace, harmony, and happiness from now on. It may be true that this young man might come from a troubled home. It might even be true that this young man has a difficult personality. 
He may even admit to you that he gets into fights regularly with his parents and siblings and roommates, and he is a hard person to get along with, but it doesn't matter. I love her, and she loves me. We'll be happy from now on forever and ever. Peace, joy, and bliss. And unfortunately, the divorce courts are filled with such couples. Why? Because at the time, he was deeply, deeply infatuated. Infatuation is a koach, is a certain force that Hashem created for a particular reason. Men and women are vastly different. Different temperaments, different needs, different emotional fabrics coming from different backgrounds. To ask in a man and a woman to come together with such differences and live in peace and harmony would be impossible. But Hashem wants men and women to come together and form a house. And therefore Hashem created certain forces to allow that to be. One of them is infatuation. Infatuation works something like the sulfur on a match. If you take a match and strike it against the matchbox, it quickly ignites into a very hot fire. But that fire only lasts for a very short time. It has a particular purpose. It's the starting point. It's a starting point, then the wood of the matchstick has to catch. That's what actually creates the flame that lasts. Infatuation is a strength that Hashem gave to give the couple that initial beginning, but then they have to learn to create the actual real bond of love. Then they have to learn to do that very difficult thing called change, eliminate the annoying habits, stopping the selfish behaviors, allowing that real bond of love to form. However, many couples never get past stage one. The infatuation flames up quickly, then flames down, and they're divorced six months later, a year at most. But here's the most frightening part about it. When the young man is deeply, madly, in what he thinks is love, in his mind, the current state will be forever. It doesn't matter that I'm a difficult person. It doesn't matter that she has annoying habits. I love her. She loves me. I'll be in this dopamine state of almost chemically induced illusion forever. By the way, they do studies that cocaine and falling in love have similar effects on the brain chemistry. But it doesn't last. It quickly fades, and then you're back to normal, and unfortunately for many couples, in a very bad state. Now, I claim that has some very real relevance to us, and I'll explain to you what I mean. If you ask the average person, what's it going to be like in the world to come? What's it going to be like in Ghanaian? It's going to be wonderful. I'm going to be an angel in white. You'll be an angel in white. I'll have big white wings. You'll have big white wings. We'll dance forever in glee and happiness, dancing as angels with white wings forever and ever and ever. A little bit like our chassan who has a delusional sense of reality, most people have a delusional sense of what it's going to be like in the world to come. Would you like to know what it's going to be like in the world to come? You will leave the body and you will separate. Not your alter ego, not your distant cousin, not someone else, you, with all of your thoughts, all of your emotions, all of what you shaped yourself into. Not a different person, not an angel in white, suddenly with gleeful, big wings floating. You, with everything you made yourself into, all of your thoughts, all of your memories, every one of your issues that became embedded into the essence of you. And what that means in plain language is, if you have a fierce temper, 
and you didn't rid yourself of it, you will have a fierce temper in the world to come. As foolish as it is, as ridiculous as it is, because there's no one to get angry at. And you understand the folly, the stupidity of it, that anger flames within you because that is you. If you worked for many years on allowing jealousy to take over the essence of you, that is you. And as foolish as it is, because there's nothing to be jealous about, there's no money, no honor in that sense, there's nothing, you still feel jealous. And if you say to me, how could it be? I don't have a body. How could it, how could it possibly be? I'll give you one simple mushroom. There's something called phantom pain. If a person loses a limb, oftentimes after the arm is amputated, the patient calls out, nurse, nurse, my arm, my arm, it's killing me. Get me something for my arm. And the nurse walks into the room and says, sir, you don't have an arm. But you see, the central nervous system hasn't yet processed that. And even though his right arm is cut off, and isn't there, it's killing him. He feels pain, throbbing pain, often burning pain, pins and needles in that arm that isn't there. In a very real sense, those traits that we didn't work on, we didn't develop, that we allowed to overcome us, are part of us forever. And if you've ever seen an old man, you ever see an old man lusting after women, at a stage in life when he's no longer physically able to do this, but he's still a dirty old man, if you allow desire to take over you, if you become it and it becomes you, you desire things in a world to come that you have no connection to, the ultimate phantom pain, the ultimate phantom desire because there's no physicality, no body, and yet you lust, and you feel so embarrassed, you feel so ashamed because everyone, and I mean everyone, sees me for exactly what I am. If you have your hand in your pocket in the winter and it's freezing cold, so you're wearing a ski glove and your friend comes over to you and says, do you have change of a dollar? And you reach in your pocket, do I have change or not? You can barely feel if there's anything in your pocket, let alone whether it's a quarter or a dime or a penny. It's not that your fingers have lost sensitivity, it's that they're covered with layers and layers of thick stuff. You see, right now I'm in this body Right now, my neshama, that means I, am covered with layers and layers of stuff, so I can't feel, I can't remember, I can't actually be margish, experience things. But when I leave this body with an alertness, an awareness that's almost frightening, with an acuity, a brilliant understanding, every memory of my life, every discussion, every conversation, every thought comes blazing back, and it's right there because it is I here I remember things for about a minute and a half my ADD takes over and I'm there and here and everywhere else especially during Shemon Esrei but there there are no distractions my thoughts are I and I am my thoughts and when I leave this heavy cloak of physicality I see with a brilliance I remember everything and I feel things much much more acutely no longer dulled, no longer burdened with this heavy coat that obscures my vision, my feelings, my senses. I feel things with a brilliance. And if you'd like a mushal, I'd like to share with you a mushal to what it's actually going to be like. Mike May was three years old when a chemical explosion blinded him. From that point on, 
he created a life for himself. He was a very bold young fellow. He learned how to ride a bike, albeit, albeit that he was blind. He learned how to negotiate in traffic with a bike as a teenager. And he created an entire life for himself. He got married and had children and had a very successful career. Certainly with his handicap, he excelled to an extent that's hard to imagine. In any case, at some point during his adulthood, he went to an out-of-town ophthalmologist. And the ophthalmologist, when examining him, said, you know, the optic nerve is intact. The lens is intact. All of the parts of your eye really are fully functioning. I believe that you can see. When you were blinded as a little boy, they didn't have the technology that we have now. I believe that we can give you back sight. And he was given the option, should I undergo the procedure or not? It wasn't guaranteed. It was risky, but it might succeed. After long, long deliberation, long, long consultation with others, he decided to undergo it. It wasn't simple. A number of procedures, a number of operations. <clears throat> Finally, after the last operation, with bandages on both eyes, he comes back to the doctor's office after things have healed. The doctor sits him in the chair. The doctor pulls off one gauze pad and pulls off another. Then the doctor sort of manipulates his, his eyelids to open him. And Mike May describes... What is that? What is that? He's looking up at the wall. What is it? It's all over. It's there. It's everywhere. What is it? His wife, who was right there, said, that's, that's, that's white. That's, that's amazing. And then he looks up at the ceiling. What's that? It's different. It's, it's not like that over there. What? That's blue. That's the color blue. He looks down, and he now sees more white. What, what's that? This white is different than that. And this white stops. What is it? That's the doctor's coat. The doctor's coat is white. He says he was afraid to think afraid to feel, because that which he was now experiencing, he thought would just run away. He began experiencing things that he never could envision, never could imagine, because from three until adulthood, he hadn't seen things. And he began relearning what things were. When his wife brought him outside, she said, look up. And he saw this thing just there and everywhere, and it doesn't stop, and it keeps going. That's the sky. And he saw something out there. What's that? She pointed at a tree, and he was able to distinguish the color, the outlines. After a while, after understanding what things meant, and after relating to colors, to shapes, to depth, to dimension, he passed a painting. It was a painting that he passed for years. But that painting was a flat piece of canvas for decades. And now all of a sudden it was a meadow, it was a scene with people, with emotions. There was a, such a vivid liveliness, such activity, that which for his entire life had been a flat piece of canvas, now was living, was alive. I believe that's an apt muscle for what it's like when we leave this earth. Imagine that they bury your body and you separate. You separate and you stand there in a room with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of photographs. Hey, there's me. There's me in my bar mitzvah. <laughs> nice suit. Here oh, and there's me when I was married. Oh, and there's me. Wow, and there's me. Oh, that's me when I said that thing. I should say, oh, I'm embarrassed by that one. Oh, there's that call. Yes, helping a woman over that. Very nice. oh. Thousands and thousands and thousands of photographs of the details of my life. Vivid color. 
but not visionary color, the same emotions that I experienced then, and the same feelings, the same person I experienced. You see, my thoughts are me. My thoughts don't vanish and disappear. In this heavy cloak of physicality, I can forget them. But when I leave this brain, when I leave this body, my sight is no longer limited, and every one of those scenes come back to me in vivid detail, with extraordinary alertness and acuity. I don't just see them, I relive them. Post-traumatic stress disorder is a very troubling syndrome. You see, when you see a horrific scene, when you even witness a murder, the scene haunts you again and again and again and again. And you tell the image to stop. And you beg it to go away. But it doesn't. It keeps coming back and keeps coming back and keeps coming back. My friends, there will be many images, many images that we'll be immensely proud of. That's me shining. That's me accomplishing. That's me living as a Jew should live. And I dare say there'll be many images that we will not be so proud of. Many images that I will be deeply pained by. And I'll wish them away. Want them to disappear, but they don't go away. You know what Gehenna is? Gehenna is a tremendous chus, a tremendous chesed, a great favor that God allows a human being who messed up in some areas. Gehenna cleans it up. But unfortunately, Gehenna is not all pervasive. It only works in small areas and small ways. Who you are is who you are. What you shaped yourself into is what you shaped yourself into. Your images, your thoughts, your desires, your inclinations that you made yourself into is what you are. And if you could imagine seeing some of those scenes that don't go away and just screaming out, Stop! Stop! Go away! I wish you would just not be there! But there's nothing you can do to change it. It's too late. And at that moment, you and I will understand the unbelievable gift called tshuva. Would you like to know what tshuva does? Tshuva whites out the image. Maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit more than that, depending on how much remorse we have. But if we reach a real sense of remorse, the image is gone. History, not there. One image, two images, ten images, a week's worth of time, a month's worth of time, ten years' worth of time. You could take entire rows, entire hundreds of those images, and they disappear as if they were never there. At that point, we'll yearn, Hashem, give me one more Yom Kippur, one more chance to get rid of this, one more opportunity to get clean, but then it's too late. The beauty of being alive is I can change. The tremendous chesed of Aser Shemek Tshuva and Yom Kippur is I can get rid of it. And this is the Chiddush, my friends. I will die. It will be me. And I'll see things there with an acuity, an alertness, an awareness. And forever I am those things. And now, as long as there's breath in my lungs, I can change them. I can get rid of them. If I sit there on Yom Kippur and really reach a state of remorse, really clap and I'll hate and understand the damage done, I can undo it. I can white it out, maybe to 50% intensity, maybe to 25 maybe only maybe getting it to only 10%. Eventually, I could white it out totally. The image isn't there. 
And when we understand this, all of a sudden, tshuva is quite relevant. Tshuva is quite the gift that Chazal tell us it is. I think there's a tremendous lesson to learn from Nebuzaradan. Nebuzaradan was one of the ultimate Rishayim ever created. 940,000 dead human beings on his hand, destroying God's Besamikdash, the sanctuary. But he undid it all both the internal as well as the external, because Hashem knows our nature, and Hashem gave us this great gift called tshuva. But you have to make use of it. The only way we can make use of it is if we get it. If we understand there's a purpose in life, if we understand we're here for a few short years, this is the gym. We're here to accomplish, to grow. When we leave our temporary state here for eternity, we are what we shaped ourselves into. And ultimately, every thought, every conversation, every action I was involved in, remains with me unless I get rid of it. The beauty, the beauty of tshuva is I can get rid of rows and rows and rows, picture after picture after picture, with a flying erase, I can get rid of entire segments. I just want to close with one last thought. And that is, maybe you'll say to me as follows, okay, tshuva is a great thing. I'm going to white it all out, whoosh, back, and there's going to be nothing left. Okay. That's great, but where does it leave me? <laughs> what kind of Ganadin is that? Meaning to say, tshuva is very nice. It's a very effective thing. It whites out spots, whites it out, whites it out. But what am I left with? Am I really that great? Have I really accomplished that much in my lifetime? I'd like to share with you that that is one of the biggest mistakes we human beings make. The Gemara asked the following question. Why is it that Nebuchadnezzar was allowed... Why was he privileged to be the one that under his dominion the base of Migdash should be destroyed? You see, kings for decades wished to conquer Eretz Yisrael. They wished, they dreamt about destroying Yerushalayim. They were not allowed. Why was this honor bequeathed on Nebuchadnezzar? The Gemara explains why. Merudach was the king when Nebuchadnezzar was a young man. Nebuchadnezzar was the scribe in Merudach's palace. One day he was not there when the following event happened. Chizkiyahu HaMelech was sick and Chizkiyahu HaMelech was healed. In honor of that, Hashem changed the world. Instead of the sun setting when it should have, Hashem extended the day and the entire world understood something miraculous occurred. The king Bavel asked, what is this? And he was told the King Chizkiya, the Melchihudu, was sick, he was healed, and in honor of that, God delayed the setting of the sun. He sent a scribe, called for a scribe, and said, write the following letter. I want to send a gift to Chizkiya, and I want you to write the following letter. And this is what it said. To the great King Chizkiya, living in the great city of Yerushalayim, with the great God Hashem, and he wrote the letter. He wrote the letter and gave it to a messenger to send out. And very shortly thereafter, Nebuchadnezzar, who had been the head scribe, came back. And he asked what had been written that day. And one of the people told him what had been written was and this letter to Chizkiel. And Nebuchadnezzar comes running into the king's palace. Stop! What did you do? How did you write such a letter? If you admit that God is great, how do you put him last? You wrote greetings to Chizkiah, greetings to Yerushalayim, greetings to Hashem. 
you, if you're admitting that God is great, you have to put him first. You should have written greetings to God, greetings to Yerushalayim, greetings to Chizkiah Melech. You did it backwards. The king said, you're right. It's your idea. You go chase down the messenger. You stop it. Says the Gemara, Nebuchadnezzar ran after the messenger. Gabriel HaMelech stopped him after three steps. Why? Because in honor of those three steps, he was given the right to destroy Yerushalayim. Had he been allowed to run the full length to catch the Shleach, Yerushalayim could never have been rebuilt. Would you like to know what this Gemara is telling us? Nebuchadnezzar stood up for covered Shemayim. He stood up for the honor of Hashem. And the reward for standing up for the honor of Hashem is so immense that he was given the right to destroy the holy Yerushalayim. Obviously, Yerushalayim was supposed to be destroyed. But why the honor granted to him? Because of what he accomplished. You see, Hashem does not want Rishayim to be paid back in the world to come. Hashem pays him back in currency in this world. The honor, the accord due for standing up for the honor of Hashem is the greatest honor due to a king. You get to destroy Yerushalayim. And now, my friends, here's the observation. Has anyone here ever stood up for Kiddush? Has anyone ever held a cup of wine Friday night and said, at the completion of the heavens, when God created the earth? Has anyone here ever stood up for Kaddish? Has everyone, anyone here ever stood up when the Sefer Torah was taken out of the Aaron Kodesh? I dare say there's an awful lot of covered Shemayim in that. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't a king. He was a scribe. But he ran three steps in honor of God's honor. This is the reward due. And when you understand that, you have a totally different understanding of schar in Olam Haba. You have a vastly different understanding of the impact, the import of our actions, of our thoughts, of what we do. Every single action that we do is weighed and measured beyond our ability to understand. Every once in a while you get an eye glimpse and you see this is the reward for that and you understand that I daven, I learn, I do chesed, I give tzedakah, I hopefully work on my midos. Granted, I do a lot of things I shouldn't do. I know that. And I'm going to work on that. And I have a plan to change. And I'm going to do tshuva. But the reality is we all do many, many things that are good, appropriate, and proper. And if you understand that, you understand we're wealthy beyond description. Our olam haba is beyond belief. To be a from Jew in our generation is an amazing, amazing accomplishment. Especially if you're a self-made man. If your parents weren't from, and you are, and you had huge, huge social pressures, huge, huge blocks to prevent you from changing your entire life, the reward is hard to imagine. But any Jew who remains loyal to Torah, to mitzvahs in our generation, has reward that's unbelievable, hard to imagine, or wealthy beyond description. The problem is that there's a lot of junk that gets accumulated over the years. A lot of garbage that gets in there. And my friends, that's the big Kiddush called tshuva. Hashem understands our nature. Hashem understands how we are. And Hashem gave us this koach. All we have to do is reach within ourselves and say, I want to get rid of it. I wish I had never done that. Let me understand the damage. Let me understand the damage to the world and the damage to myself. When I get that, I can reach a sense of harata. I can get rid of it. The wealth I have, the only problem is the dirt. The dirt can be gotten rid of if we do the system, if we use Yom Kippur appropriately. May Hashem grant us 
that we come to this understanding. May Hashem grant us a Shnas Chaim, a good Gebenchir, and a total proper tshuva. You've been listening to A Fresh New Start, Part 5 of The Lost Art of Teshuvah. This, as well as hundreds of other Shmooz audio, video, and articles are available on theshmooz.com or on the Shmooz app, available for iPhone or Android. That's www.theshmuz.com or by phone at Kol HaLashon, 718-906-6461.